Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to a special edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Seb Stafford Bloor of Tifo Football. We might at some stage have to mention you know who going to you know where. But a new Premier League season is upon us. It's a traditional time for us to make fools of ourselves and prematurely pick our winners and losers. Since I work on the principle I'd never ask someone to do a job I wouldn't do myself, I'll kick it off by announcing the champions for 2021-22. Chelsea. They've addressed a pressing need by re-signing Romelu Lukaku and have great strength in depth. Now, Migs, you saw them win the Super Cup in Belfast. Care to offer me an argument? Yeah, I am. Um, and I think part of the reason why I would also have Chelsea as favourites at this point is because of the reason they're in the Super Cup in the first place, which is the Champions League final. And I think, because I think that could be the most meaningful game of this season, as well as last season, for its consequence, I mean, I mean, the the expectation is, if there is to be a title race and there is to be two clubs, it will probably be Chelsea and Man City. First of all, I suppose just by winning that game, you can you can almost feel it with Chelsea. It, it was obviously an exceptional squad there already. Tuchel had them for what three to four months, and there was progress. But a win like that can have a binding effect on a team and kind of you know make them more kind of psychologically cohesive, deepen the manager's effect. And bring them on to a next level. I think that started to happen, and Lukaku would help with that. And if you take the, I suppose if you take the alternative, had they lost that game, then a Tuchel team that scrapes into the Champions League is a lot more fragile than a team that wins it in a relatively convincing manner. But on the flip side, there's also the effect on City, and I'm very curious as to how, in the medium to long term what Guardiola did in that final is going to affect the City team. I've spoken to a fair bit of people about this over the summer and I've got, I'm doing a piece down the Independent maybe I think it's like, yeah, Thursday or Friday. should plug that. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, there, there has been low-level irritation with the players. 
I mean, as I heard, I heard from one top name manager put it kind of privately. The, the one golden rule in a final is you don't destabilize the team. You don't unsettle them. And that that's essentially what Guardiola. Okay, a bit of edge is fine. Something a little different is fine. But not the extent of the drastic changes he did, where at least four players were playing in roles they were they weren't used to or, or didn't really understand. I mean, that that was one of the issues. And so, like, basically, what that can do, I think, is basically it, it has the potential to break the psychological hole the manager has in a team. Already, a lot of these players they find Guardiola very intense and exhausting, but they put up with it because he's a genius. But if that genius leads them to play or underperform in what was the biggest game of their careers up to that point, then it could be an issue. And I do think that could just feed into this season. Also, while <clears throat> Chelsea are basically signing a player with Lukaku in, you, that you know they need, City don't really need Grealish, do they? I mean, I, I, he's, an ador- he's a great player, he's an adornment, but it's not filling an obvious hole. There was already unrest with some of the attack. I mean, Sterling even spoke about his lack of game time before the Euros. City, I mean, it's been an open secret that they want about two or five out. Also, it could affect their pursuit of Harry Kane or a striker, which is the one player they definitely need. Although I'm actually, I'm a little curious as to how much City actually want Kane, but that's a separate discussion. And I just think all this added up, I think Chelsea go in maybe in a slightly more efficient place. What about, you know, let's let's look, Sam, if we could, at the coaches and specifically Tuchel. His influence was obviously felt again in the Super Cup. That sort of combination of logic and almost consolidation of his of his influence in terms of, you know, he made that decision about bringing on Kepa on, you know, firm analytic advice. But there was also a little bit of empathy there in terms of, well, let's just bring this guy back into the fold a bit. How impressed have you been by Tuchel? As Mick said, you know, we had half a season of him, essentially. He also seems to have Pep Guardiola's number tactically. Will he be the fundamental figure of the season, do you think? Yeah, well, certainly one of the main protagonists, Mike. I I think um, I'm impressed with Tuchel. I'm also a bit surprised. I remember thinking when the decision to appoint him became public and it became clear that he was heading for Chelsea. I had reservations about how he'd handled the political climate. He's not the easiest character, whether that's because he's an intense person and maybe we read a little bit too much into the kind of the the environment that he suffered in at Paris Saint-Germain and towards the end of his time at Dortmund too. I think what's in the, the, the Kepa thing was, was I don't know, like uh, we, we've seen it before, obviously, and um, Louis van Gaal did it with Tim Krul. It happened, obviously, to Kepa the other way around. And so it's a nice moment, a little bit of a distraction, possibly. I think what really impresses me about him is the clarity of his communication, which we're guessing at because we haven't experienced it. But if you look at how quickly those players have adapted to what he wants them to do, because Chelsea are decorated with pretty enviable talent, yeah, but the system is really solid. So, for instance, last night, you can drop a player like Trevor Chalaba, who has no experience at all at that level of the game, into a wide centre-back role. And he played very, very well. You can pick a few holes in it. But when that starts to happen, when you when you put a player, when you drop a piece into a system and there's no real sort of, there's no detrimental, detrimental effect, I've always felt that that describes something really positive about the structure as a whole. And I think that's, that's what surprised me as well, because when you think of Tuchel, you think technocrat, you think 
a little bit of a kind of Guardiola vibe to him in the sense that sometimes possibly you got the sense that players have been a little bit overwhelmed with the instructions. Not the case clearly at Chelsea. He's almost, he reminds me a little bit of Pochettino in the way that the players respond to him. Not in the style of football, obviously, or in the kind of the character, but in that sort of, that bond which we are sort of voristically looking in on. I remember when the camera panned in on um, on the Chelsea group ahead of the penalty shootout last night and you could kind of make out a few, a few comments and it was sort of, it's, that's not really what I associated with him. I so yeah, of course I'm impressed, and I, I think this goes a long way to explaining why we all back Chelsea to win the titles. Because if it were just a case of right, who's spending the most money, who is assembling the shiniest group of objects, then you know Chelsea kind of Chelsea have been doing that for a really long time. This feels like you're dropping a Lukaku, for instance, into a much healthier situation, and that's kind of it's a little bit intimidating for the other teams, Manchester City aside. What do you think, Minks, is the best constitution of Chelsea's attack to get the best out of Lukaku? You know, obviously he's become a much more complete forward since leaving Chelsea for Everton. You know, you're going to miss, they're going to miss Zayech because of the injury sustained in the Super Cup. Where's the balance? How's he going to find the balance in that team? Well, I mean, to be fair to Tuchel, and this is actually true of, of, of a few of these top managers now, I think maybe the idea of any preferred formation or arrangement is not that it's becoming old-fashioned, but I mean the key to a lot of these teams is basically just the, the instant uh, adaptability. I mean we've we, I mean we've seen it. With, I remember a few times last season where, you, where there were games playing. You thought, okay, this is his team. This is what he wants to start with, and then but for the for the next big game, we go something drastic. Maybe like someone like Pulisic who would be out of the team, would then suddenly be in because he, his pace specifically suited a, a, a particular game. And I, I think that's one of the real qualities of Tuchel. It is something he shares with Guardiola. Although I do sense maybe Guardiola has, I mean, it's remarkable to say this, maybe a slightly more fixed idea in terms of it, it, there's more variability to, uh, or more variety to to what, what Tuchel can do. The Lukaku, well, I mean, he's, he's obviously going to be a number nine, but it's in, one of the images I most have of Lukaku is actually I, I, one of the places where I find him most exhilarating and points to the fact that he's not just a goal scorer. It's suddenly when he's he's charging from deep, 30 yards from goal, the kind of the pace outstripping a defence. I suppose I've got a little bit of, uh, of that with Timo Werner on the other side, if without the, uh, <laughs> the end product <laughs> for now. <laughs> but... I, I mean, I suppose maybe, maybe this is a slightly different uh, answer, or, or sorry, an answer to a different question. But when it comes down to it, really, I suppose, maybe you're talking about what are Chelsea's three best attackers if Tuchel was to try and arrange them in any team. Lukaku will obviously start as kind of the only real number nine there. It feels like Kai Havertz has gone on to another level, and even despite missing the penalty, his his ball for the goal was superb on Wednesday, and after and of course after his winning goal in the Champions League final, you just feel he's kind of growing into the player that we all thought he would be when he arrived at Chelsea, despite a slightly indifferent start. I think Havertz almost a must. Mount every single manager loves him because of the discipline, the tactical discipline he has, as well as his technical quality. Although of course he can fit into midfield, and then I mean he's one of the most maligned players in the team. But despite what I just said about Werner's finishing. Tuchel likes him a lot, and as much he likes him because, especially in the modern game, it's the extent of his pressing, the way he presses, the way his relentlessness almost. I mean, despite all these misses, he never his head never goes down. He'll keep doing what a team demands, and he really sets the pace of a team and a game. 
Yeah. Don't worry about the answers. You, you come up with any answer, whatever question I ask you, Migs, okay? <laughs> looking at, looking at the, the, the other end of the pitch, if you like, Seb, lest we forget, they were remarkably stingy last season, the Chelsea. Are we looking at Thiago Silva's workload being managed and do they need, do Chelsea need to add maybe one more player. They've been linked, obviously, very strongly with Jules Koundé from uh, Sevilla. Yeah, I suppose it depends what the kind of the long-term plan is for that defensive system. If it's a three, then I think that still depends a little bit on Thiago Silva because he's by far their best option in the middle role. Koundé is special player. And, I mean, we've heard reports of fees going out to sort of the 60, 70 million pound range. And that's absolutely fine because you know that's a that's a pretty fair approximation of his talent. One thing I say is he's quite short for a centre half. I know that might be old fashioned thinking, and yes, Fabio Cannavaro was five foot nine, five foot ten. I I understand, but I think if you put a player like that into the Premier League and you subject him to our kind of our slightly hysterical reactions to things, we're all guilty of it. If he has a bad start, that's quite hard for a player that costs a lot of money. But I do think they need another centre back. Because Thiago Silva is, I think he's 37 now, 36. He's almost as old as I am, which is um, sobering, actually, when you start describing players like that and they're younger than you. You um, wait till he gets my age, mate. <laughs> no, no, I don't even want to dwell on that, Mike. I, I, I'm not entirely convinced by Christensen. I'm not, I think Kurt Zuma is fine as a Premier League centre-back. I think he is a 7 out of 10 player. If you want to... And I think this is one of the differences between winning the Champions League and winning the Premier League. I think if you want to go through a 38-game season and you know, still have a good defensive record, I think you need a, another really, truly first-class centre-back. If you look at the last two teams to have won the Premier League, they're both built on really good defensive performers. Very stable, very consistent. Virgil van Dijk, obviously, the year before last. Ruben Diaz was a huge difference maker at Manchester City last year. And I think the same would be true of Chelsea. So, yeah, if I was them, I, I would be keen to see something a little bit better in that back line, I think. Let's look at City, if we could, please, Megs. Now, and specifically that silver elephant in the City boardroom, that recurring challenge of the Champions League, Guardiola has to win it to be fulfilled at City, I would suggest. And I know we wouldn't really want to dwell on this, but do you think the arrival of Lionel Messi at PSG, which in itself is a demand that they win the Champions League, will act as a motivation for Guardiola this season? As the issue of motivation is, I don't think Guardiola could be any more motivated to win the Champions League. In fact, there's an argument that's a problem, that it's his intense obsession with winning it causes him to do things like he did in the Champions League final. I mean, people might say that's an easy narrative and all the rest of it, the usual lines you get, but I think it's a very discernible pattern now. And you can see it, it, it's been repeated so often that I think there's, de there's definitely something to it, especially the inexplicable nature of uh, the way they set up in, in, in that final. <laughs> you, can all, you almost said maybe City would be better served if he took a step back but uh, that's not going to happen with Guardiola. I mean, I mean, there's another. I think I think you're absolutely right in terms of he has to win it. And the thing with the Champions League, it's a cup competition. Yes, you are more hostage to you know blind luck and all the rest of it in any one game or any one tie. It doesn't have the guarantees that a league season did. But when you're at a club like Manchester City for five, well, it's going to, this is going to be his 
sixth season. And on top of that, three of Bayern and then a fourth on top of that of Barca in 2011-12. All since that's 10 seasons going into this one since his last victory. You can't keep point. I mean, just because of the resources he's had, he should have been capable of winning at some point. And, 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 and again, you want, I mean, is, is it like that paradox of the, the frog that every time it jumps, it always jumps half the length it did the last time. So it's always getting closer, but never getting there. <laughs> is there almost a little bit of that with City right now? Especially, if you, if you remember the build-up to that final last, it, it did feel, for just the, the general discussion, about, I'm not saying of everyone, obviously, and I think there were a lot of people that always said, be careful of Chelsea here. But there was a feeling in the build-up that, as if it was, it was almost ordained that, you know, Guardiola and City were going to be anointed as European champions. It was their occasion, only for Chelsea to take it away from them. So they, they had, they, it had seemed like they cracked it, especially after beating PSG in the semi-final. And, he, and even, the, even actually the response to beating Dortmund in the quarter-final. And then suddenly they get to that game, they're finally there. And again, I, I know I keep coming back to this, but I think it's so significant. The nature of that game just potentially causing a, a huge ripple effect and, and having untold consequences. Also, sorry, in relation to the business, say they, say they were to get Grealish and Kane, particularly Grealish, I suppose. I mean, I, I still don't think Kane will happen due to the fee involved. But it, it, it's, it's quite a depressing transfer in the way it's it, after a pandemic, a club like City or a, a state project, just buying, you know, using all that money and all those resources to take the best player off a kind of a, a mid-tier club who were desperate for him. And it would seem like the ultimate display of power, especially after having won a title in the manner they did. But we've seen that sort of thing. Like the, during the week and at the Community Shield, I wrote this at the time, I couldn't help thinking of, say, when United signed Varane in 2001, when Chelsea signed Balak and Shevchenko in 2006, and when United signed Berbatov in 2008. These were all teams that had won titles or repeat titles. These signings seemed particular displays of power where everybody thought, oh, well, that's it, that's it then, that's them on another level. But they ended up kind of causing unexpected problems, kind of disrupted the rhythm of the team. And while Grealish is obviously an absolutely superb player, I do have a few wonders. I mean, he, he's probably the most individualistic player in England, which is part of his charm. It's why he's so distinctive. But he's going into the most highly structured system, bar probably Tuchel's, in, in European football. And there has to be some adap- adaptation there. Mentioning in Harry Kane, Seb, obviously it's a... It's a Dilemma probably a little bit close to your heart. Um, mm. Nuno has already said that he is available for Sunday's game at Tottenham against City, which is an entirely different thing from saying you will play. Do you expect him to play? But also, can you just dwell on the saga to this point? I think we all agree that communication on all sides has been desperately bad. What influence does that have, do you think, on the club in general? Is it that... Th- you know, is it is it the sin that dare not speak its name at uh, at Tottenham uh, or the training ground at the moment? I suppose we'll see because he's he's due to take a PCR test on Friday and return to training and join the group. He's been in isolation at the lodge at Spurs, so in terms of how he integrates, I'm not sure. There was a very sort of cryptic Instagram post from Eric Dyer who talked about, I'm paraphrasing of course, but how. It was someone in the American media talking about um, how Kobe Bryant's achievements in basketball, Michael Jordan's achievements in basketball, were superior to LeBron James's because he didn't just go and chase the kind of the convenient situation. Forgive me if my basketball knowledge is lacking there and that doesn't stand up, but that was the gist of it. Go and look it up yourself. 
I don't think he will play on Sunday, Mike. And I think it might be best that he doesn't because I, I think he would get a very mixed reaction because I, I feel I'm not going to comment on the standard of the communication too much because I don't think anybody should be blind to the fact that it's been coming from both sides, club and player. It's just the club have done a slightly better job. It's been a little bit more professional, or a lot more professional, I'd say. I think the problem with Kane is that I think a lot of fans, I know many fans feel like their intelligence has been insulted a little bit with the justifications for this and the kind of retro explanations for things, certainly kind of in terms of his entry back into the country and some of the rules that he was supposedly adhering to, that didn't make much sense in terms of what the current rules are. So it was, it felt as if Kane wanted it both ways. And I, I think most fans going to the summer accepted his rationale for wanting to leave. I think most club, most fans would want to leave the club themselves and just say, like, we, none of us want to be here at the moment. The thing is that the way it's come across is it's fine if you want to leave, but you cost what you cost. And I think the way Kane's representatives have handled the situation comes across as a player trying to get a little bit of a discount for Manchester City, which I understand it's a one-sided perception of the situation, but that is how it is. Manchester City don't get discounts on players, and they definitely don't when they've just spent £100 million on Jack Grealish. Like, with all due respect to Grealish, and I'm with Miguel, like I, I love watching him, fabulous player, but Harry Kane has more golden boots than Jack Grealish has Premier League seasons to his name. So you, you can't expect to be sold for the same amount of money. So it's been very ugly. And the tragedy of it is, is that very quietly, I don't think Spurs are in the middle of any kind of renaissance, but it is more positive. It's a little bit, there are things there to be interested in. And Son Heung-min is signing a new contract. That's brilliant news for Tottenham. It's an amazing achievement given where they are and given how good a player Son is. It's, it's quite strange that he hasn't, that it's been not easy because it's been quite a protracted process, but that he's been convinced to um, sign what will be the last contract of his prime, really, at a club who are outside the Champions League. It's amazing. Brian Gilles is a lovely player. Christian Romero is a superb addition to the defence. And yet all of this occurs under these grey skies of a player whose identity with the fans has shifted and has probably changed, for some people, have changed forever now. Sadly. What's the impact, do you think, or what has the impact been on Nuno, do you think, Migs? Because it's, you know, I look at it as, a, as you know, externally. His authority has to have been undermined by the chaotic nature of his appointment, even before we had the, the Kane Circus hit town. I understand Seb's optimism, but I look at it and I think, well, I think they're under threat not to finish in the top six. I'd agree. I think Spurs are in a very precarious position right now in terms of, and it, it's remarkable how quickly that their their status as a team on the brink of joining the truly, and you only have to look at the kind of number. Now, again, the pandemic has had a huge effect, but the numbers in terms of kind of what they got from the run to the Champions League final in 2019 and where they could be next and how, how far they could have dropped from that. And let's not forget, I mean, as regards Nuno's authority, at the very start of that whole farcical manager search, there was a lot of briefings that there was, and a lot of reports that they had no interest in Nuno, that he didn't suit what uh, the style of football that Spurs want. You know, there, there was there were some questions about his career so far in terms of achievements relative to resources. None of that has changed. He's he, he's he is another Jose Mourinho in terms of his outlook. 
Not in, maybe, not in, maybe in terms of personal. Although, yeah, I mean, one thing I should say, his, his work during the, or his kind of charitable work during the pandemic was absolutely laudable. But he is, I think, a bit spikier in terms of in dealings with players than maybe people on the outside realise. But obviously, he's not he's not a Jose Mourinho in that regard. But yeah, in terms of his defensive or in terms of his approach to football, it is just another Mourinho. It's reactive football, building a team based on how, based on how the opposition come at you and adapting to that. I I personally I found the football at Wolves mind numbing. There were some flashes, and they could be exhilarating when they broke. But that's always the nature of counter attacking football. When a team is suddenly allowed to surge forward, football a fast football looks good, but the principle is still dull and it's 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 defensive and it's reactive and you know so i I don't really share seb's optimism i have to say i think they spurs spurs could be caught out with of course yeah actually on the flip side of that the 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 Kane situation is all the more ironic because i think actually spurs made some decent signings so that shouldn't be overlooked either but then i don't think kane will go to manchester city it could be famous last words here we could be playing these clips out i don't think kane will go and i don't think City want him that much. So if we look at it, do we actually see, can we see beyond the usual suspects for the top four, Seb? And and if, you know, we, we accept that convention, let's look at Liverpool if we could. Jurgen Klopp is confirming that Van Dijk and Gomez are available to start at Norwich if required. Where are Liverpool? There's a sense of, not, not stasis, but they they do need seem to have a have a need to actually be freshened up a bit. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I I like Canate as a centre back. I think that's a really good signing. I think actually when he was at Leipzig, Ubermecano got all the press and the plaudits, and he was the kind of the anointed one. I always felt that Canate was probably the better footballer of the two, and I think Liverpool might have got a better deal than Bayern Munich. So I like him. I worry about the attack because I, th- I think politically it has to be very very difficult. Diego Jota is there, but when you the kind of the um, the principle of breaking up that front three is going to be very very hard to manage because they've all shared in this amazing success and this journey together. When you start dropping players in and out of that and starting to say, right, well, Sadio Mane, you're you know approaching thirty, so are you, Mo Salah, so are you, Roberto Firmino, so you're not going to play this game, you're not going to play this game. We've seen in the past that when you do that, when a team sort of descends from the summit and starts to make changes, it can be quite fractious. So I'd worry that. I'm still a little bit muddled as to what the midfield is doing because Liverpool, I suppose ever since they signed Naby Keita, who we just haven't seen the best of, he's a good, good player, but he just, I don't know, he's like a hes like a slightly out of tune instrument in an orchestra. It just doesn't quite work there. But they have the parts to create a really brilliant midfield. And so there are elements in the squad that you can use for this renewal. And that's not even mentioning guys like Curtis Jones, who I think I'm right in saying is going to miss the start of the season with concussion. Harvey Elliott, good player. Don't know how good yet. Don't know how ready he is. And so these are interesting little options. It's also difficult. I've, I've watched Liverpool fans across social media talk about this for most of the summer, but it feels slightly unfair that they've they've made such progress. Okay, possibly the, the changes in the side and the improvements haven't happened at the pace the supporters wanted them to. And there's a little bit of, uh, some have taken a bit of umbrage with the ownership. But at the same time, I feel like that's a situation which has been accentuated by this remarkable spending power that has transcended the coronavirus and seems to carry on regardless of the restrictions which are being imposed on pretty much every other club in Europe. If you're, by the end of this window, if Chelsea and Manchester City have, within a space of 10 days, broken the British transfer record, 
then that's pretty difficult to compete with when you haven't had any stadium revenue for 14 months and the general marketplace is incredibly depressed and you can't sell. One of Liverpool's great strengths in the past has been their ability to sell unwanted players for big fees. Think about you know the Dominic Solanke deal to Bournemouth. I know they sold Harry Wilson to Fulham for a decent fee, but they haven't quite had that facility in the same way. And if you don't, then if you're a club other than Manchester City and Chelsea, or probably Manchester United, it's really difficult. And you can find yourself sliding down the ladder a little bit without really going backwards just by staying still. So I I am a little bit concerned about Liverpool just because defensive injuries seem to be a nasty habit they've picked up. Andy Robinson's going to miss the start of the season. Canate, a good player, we've talked about him, but a little bit brittle. So watch that. You'd always have a reservation about someone like Virgil van Dijk who's come back from long-term injury. So we'll see. And, and I also really like what Leicester are doing. Had we had this conversation prior to that awful injury suffered by Fofana with terrible tackle against Villarreal? I don't know what a player's doing tackling like that in pre-season, but I think I would probably favour them for fourth. But we shall see. Mm. Manchester United, of course, have invested up to a point. Well, up to a point, they've spent more than £120 million. But Jadon Sancho, Migs, do you see him hitting the ground running at United? Maybe there'll have to be a little bit of adaptation or kind of getting back to or getting used to the rhythm of the league again but of course it's not it's not like it's a foreign player coming from his his own league or a different league it's you know the the culture he grew up in so there won't be that moment maybe just in terms of kind of more so going from Dortmund to the different rhythms of United but yeah I'd, 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 I'm quite excited about the signing there's a lot of pace to that United attack now and a lot of kind of uh, sharp angles which is very encouraging for them and yeah <laughs> I can't get away from the reservations I've had throughout the time we've discussed United on the, on the podcast, well, since Mourinho left, which is, I mean, there's almost this, this, this lingering feeling. United actually now have a squad and a first 11, maybe bar a midfielder, that can challenge for the title. But do they have the manager that can challenge for the title? And I know people will point to third, third for uh, Solskjaer in 2020, second in 2021, and now like, they're ready for that next step. But it, it, it doesn't work as easily as that. Like, you know, I, I remember with Gerard Houllier at Liverpool, it was almost similar. There, were, they, they, there was a steady progression. They went from the, the quadruple, there was third, there was second. Then just as it looked like he was going to get ready for, for a title challenge, it all, it all collapsed in November 20, 2002, I remember. They, but now I'm not saying that's going to happen to Solskjaer, but more so, there's a difference in finishing third or second when you're not really in a title race and when there's not that much pressure and you can kind of tick along and wink take all these games where it's kind of and and then finishing second when it's actually a title challenge and, and there's a real tension to it and again for another example of that you know because i'm doing research on something recently i was sir alex ferguson was talking about when he finished second in his first full season of manchester united behind liverpool only to suddenly plummet after that and just want to, if there's any expectation of Manchester United to actually do anything concrete, like a win a trophy, or sorry, won it, sorry, I should say win a major trophy under Solskjaer, I just don't have that much faith. Like I, again, I could well be proven wrong on that, but I think there's a, a fair bit of evidence about it. I, I even if you go right back to the Europa League and, and, the, and the team I saw last night, Villarreal, back in May. That, that, that was such a golden opportunity for Solskjaer. And again, as, in the same way we said about Chelsea at the top of the programme where winning the Champions League was a kind of almost it was 
a key binding moment for that team. United were basically denied that. I mean, because, you know, and people can go on about the Euro, the Europa League not meaning that much, but Solskjaer hasn't won a trophy yet, or a major trophy. He hasn't, he hasn't won a trophy at Manchester United. He could have done one and with the effects of a trophy. And they, they squandered that rather rather easily against an inferior side, a, a team who finished seventh in the Spanish League. That, you know, by, as everyone is justifiably saying at the moment, the Spanish League is in decline. Mm. Just want to drill down, if I could, Seb, into your confidence about Leicester. Now, you know, they've thrown away Champions League qualification in the last two seasons, haven't they? The investment, though, has been significant. It's been clever. It's been consistent. We've already identified Patson Dakar as a potential breakout star. Do you agree with that? And and how do you see that team, the Brendan Rodgers team, evolving? <clears throat> it's not that I... Uh... It's not that I necessarily see any evolution, Mike. I just feel like they're protected a little bit. So last two seasons, obviously they were, with a few exceptions, they they were reliant on a on a nucleus of players. And so if they lost in Didi or if players, uh, obviously lost Harvey Barnes last season, if Vardy wasn't scoring goals because we're getting to that stage of his career where he's a little bit more peak and trophy at the moment. You look around that squad now and there's a little bit more depth in these key positions. Samari is a player that I really like and I know that he's not a exact replacement for Wilfred Ndidi, but he's a he's someone that you can combine with Ndidi. He's someone that in theory you could use to cover an Ndidi absence. Dakar, I think Dakar is going to terrify the life out of Premier League centre-halves. You can't play a high line against Leicester. You shouldn't be doing so anyway with Vardy in that side. But particularly now, great finisher, pacey, intelligent. He will score goals. More importantly, it means that when you can get to, you know, the sort of the dog days of the season, so the Christmas schedule or, you know, the kind of early New Year where, you know, you've got FA Cup games, you've got League Cup games, potentially you've got European interest too. You don't have to ride the same group of players again and again and again. And I, I think whether it's been noticed or not, I think that's been one of the issues. So if you look at sort of, for instance, the creative nucleus of that side, Madison, Barnes, to a certain extent, someone like Albrighton. I think Ian Acho plays that role a little bit. He's not really a nine. He's somewhere between a nine and a ten. He's a creative player. You have many more combinations and you have a few more fail saves, added to which they're better. These are good players. And I, I also, I really like the Ryan Bertrand signing as well. I think he's he's had a funny old career. I mean, if you if you look at it, he's a he's a Champions League winner, which is which is and it's very strange to win your win a Champions League at that stage of your career and then take the trajectory that he did. I always felt like he, and I don't mean any disrespect to Southampton, I always felt like he belonged at a slightly higher level of the game. And I think Leicester's a perfect fit for him. I think he'll get on with Brendan Rodgers. I think they signed Yannick Vestergaard as of this morning, Thursday. That's a nice addition, particularly with the uh, Fafana absence. I mean, <laughs> Vestergaard's Suincho. In the centre of defence, I mean, you're you're not going to win many headers against those two, are you? So uh, there's a lot I like, and of, of course you've got one of the, the Premier League's best goalkeepers at the back of that formation. So it just looks really nice and settled, and it's calm. There's no there's no bad noise. There's no discontent, and mood seems such an important thing at this time of year, Mike. Just just on Dak, actually, speaking to a lot of people in football, they are shocked that more clubs didn't go in for him. And basically, I suppose, bump up his price to make it that more, bit more difficult for Leicester to sign him. And from what I'm hearing, it, it would be very quickly one of those situations where people will go, hang on, why why didn't why weren't people in for him? Uh, in, this, in, the same way, in the same way we saw with Fafana. With Fafana, it quickly became obvious 
this is a defender of real promise that could immediately step into a top side. And from what I hear about Dhaka, it's going to be the exact same. Did it feel to you, because I, I, it does still feel to me now, like when you have players coming out of certain leagues, and obviously Dhaka made his name at Salzburg, there's still a little bit of snobbery. There's still mm. a little bit of, you know, like it, it feels like it was the same with Holland. I know he was always going to sort of most likely head to Germany, but it feels as if there's a little bit of hesitation around players because of where they come from. I don't know, it's a strange thing to say in 2021. I, I think actually, from what I've heard in the past, or recently actually, that, and it, this is actually applied to some of the some of the signings Chelsea made last summer, even like Werner, that there is, I wouldn't say reticence, but with Austria, Germany, and the Netherlands, because there's such, I suppose, an admirable, if also necessary, will to play young players, it can create a high degree of variety in performance, and players can suddenly perform really, really well, when, and it's not quite a true indication of their base quality. And I think maybe that's that can sometimes why there can be a little bit of reluctance. That's interesting. Mm. What do you think? You know, in terms of names which you know recur in transfer windows, Leon Bailey's one, isn't it? Do you think he's probably been recruited by Villa, say, a couple of years too late? And have they used the Grealish? Winful wisely. If so, are they potential European qualifiers? You know, there's a group of clubs, aren't there? So you can look at maybe Everton, Leeds. We'll have to look at North London, although I don't think they'll get get close to the top six. If you look at Villa's recruitment, Seb, it's not quite as sharp as Leicester's, but I still see some logic behind it. I really like Villa's recruitment, Mike. <clears throat> Bailey is... I don't think he's been recruited too late. I think I think the problem with Bailey was two years ago, he had an excellent season at Leverkusen. And over the last 18 months, he has been quite up and down. But I've seen that more as a symptom of Leverkusen's own difficulties. They've had a little bit of strife. Peter Bosch has obviously departed the club. And there's been a little bit of a reset there. At his best, in the right system, Bailey is a hugely destructive player. I made this comparison on Twitter, actually. He reminds me a little bit of Laurent Robert in the sense that he's very, very left-footed. He's very, very pacey. He's aggressive with the ball, but he will have peaks during the season because you just can't, you can't be, uh, you, you just can't produce this kind of pyrotechnics for nine months of the year. Buendia, I really like. I think it's a little bit of an overspend, but I, you know, that that's okay. I really like the Danny Ng signing. There were times last season, for instance, when I thought that, um, I think Ollie Watkins is an excellent player. I thought they were a little bit light up front. I felt like there was a little bit of, it wasn't quite as reliable as it needed to be for them to exist in the top half of the table. So if you add players like McGinn and Douglas Louise to that, I think it's a, it's a positive situation. And it's as positive as it can be when you've lost your captain, your talisman, the player who is the kind of the modern emblem of your club. I think that's a difficult thing to to overcome, but I, I think there's sort of the tone of Villa's response, including their recruitment, including the, the Perslow statement. I never thought I would react positively to a Christian Perslow statement, but I was impressed because I compared it to, in my mind, I compared it to what the likely reaction would have been around the league in other, if other clubs have found themselves in that situation. I think about my own club and what might Daniel Levy have said in that situation. I think I'd have concluded, well, he'd have said nothing and we'd have just gone on. And I... I think it's been dealt with quite well. And so I'm positive. I, at the very least, Mike, I'm really looking forward to watching Villa. I don't know what they'll be, but I suspect there'll be times this season when 
They have a few disappointing home defeats, but they also produce some really excellent football in kind of hour, 45 minute periods. And you just think this is this is fun. And I think it's been a really long time since Villa were fun. And that's a good thing. Like I, I remember watching, I obviously I'm dating myself, but I remember watching the kind of the, the Dwight York Villa team with, with uh, Savo Milosevic and, you know, among Milosevic's better moments. That was fun. There were there were good players there, and it was kind of it was about more than just trying to exist at Premier League level. Which, for much of the last decade, say the last two years, that's what Villa have been about: this kind of sliding towards the Championship, the consolidation, the near miss, then the promotion, and the kind of the grind to survival. Now you can develop a little bit more personality as a football team, and that's an exciting place to be. One of the most entertaining European games I've ever watched was Aston Villa knocking out Inter in, uh, I think it was around Octo- October, November 94. It was Burkamp's Inter. And I'm really, really, I think Nicola Berti was still on the team. It was a great side. And that, was a, that was an amazing night. But yeah, I mean, that's what Villa, Villa are a club that shouldn't really be about consolidation. And I mean, there, there should be a, an air of entertainment and an adventure to them. And I mean, you would think a sale of a player like Grealish is contrary to that, but I mean, I, I must say, in in most cases in the situation, while I, I would I would have deep reservations about where the game is going and the ease with which the big clubs pick off these players. On the flip side, I'm also look, look at a club like if you want to go to close to the very top, look at a club like Juventus, who even in their absolute glory years in the '90s when they were getting three Champions League finals in a row, their their philosophy was always. Regardless of the player, if we get the right price, we sell them because we, we can reinvest that and just create a better team. And you should never be any wedded to one player because that's... It's dangerous. It's, it's ultimately kind of destructive. In the, yeah, exactly. And at least... I think I think Seb is right. Their, their signings have been impressive. I mean, you, you never really kind of know the success or failure of any signing basically until after that first season, really, or after a few seasons. So winning the transfer market is, is always a bit of a fallacy. Um, but at the very least, the signings are promising. Yeah, there are a lot of questions around, aren't they? You know, how, how will Everton respond to Rafa Benitez? Will West Ham struggle to maintain the momentum, you know, supplied principally last season by Jesse Lingard? And there you've got that usual unwanted distraction of the owners trying to sell the club. But Seb, I just want to concentrate on Arsenal. Is faith in Mikel Arteta ebbing away? Ooh, difficult question. I, I don't know about ebbing away, but I think this is going to be a really important season. This is make or break for him because I think since he arrived at Arsenal, since he was installed, Arsenal obviously shuffled the pieces around him and above him and they've made a change to just about every department of the club, which isn't his role. So, and I, I felt like last season, it was almost like a mind trick because... Arsenal spent most of the, well, seemed, every time I checked the Premier League table, they were 10th. And you think for Arsenal and the quality of footballers they've got in this team, that's awful. And I can't think of many managers that would have survived, particularly that run at the beginning of the season. He was pretty, I, I have no idea about the sort of the inner workings of the club or what conversations happened. But to me, given the kind of the precedence of what it takes to lose your job in the Premier League, you seem quite lucky to survive. Now, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I still suspect there will be some irritation over recruitment. The failure to sell Granite Xhaka and then to give him a new contract seems particularly unpopular among the fans. Also, the I, I think a lot of supporters went into the season, into the preseason, hoping to see a number 10 or at least a creative midfielder come through the door. I think James Madison was hopeful. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. But 
I don't know what the excuses are at Arsenal. Like I, you know, okay, they have some flaws and there are some issues. I don't think the goalkeeper's good enough. The defence hasn't been good enough for a really long time. Defensive midfield isn't good enough. But I don't see enough improvement. I don't see, I mean, Arsenal haven't been playing Champions League football for a really long time. So it's unrealistic to expect, you know, the club at this point in their history to be able to attract players who are individually able to change the club's future. It's just not going to happen, really. Like, you have to you have to shop with younger players. You have to spend £50 million on young central defenders who've only got a, Premier, well, see a single season of Premier League experience and, like, two England caps. That's, that's the area they're in. So it's difficult, but Arsenal play their football in a hysterical environment, have done for a long time. So if it doesn't go well, it's going to become pretty intolerable for Arteta before much longer, yeah. Mm. Do you think they're vulnerable at Brentford on Friday, Migs? Because, and also, can you go into who do you think or which promoted team do you think has the greatest potential to actually survive this season? I think they are vulnerable at Brentford in terms of uh, just because it's almost been the recent nature of Arsenal that, and this sums up to where the club is, that they do have this propensity for calamity and to lose games where they should be obvious favourites. And I mean this, regardless of how promising Brentford are and how well they run, Arsenal as a as one of the notional big six, this should be a bit of a kind of a forgiving win to, or sorry, a forgiving fixture to start the season. In saying all that, I'm actually um, I'm 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 quite well, relatively optimistic about Arsenal this season. I say. Um, I think I, I can't bring I, himself I think, to say they, it. <laughs> well, you know, they're the, 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 the best performing, uh, or sorry, the second best performing team in England since uh, Boxing Day. I said I said Boxing Day with an emphasis because I'm I'm uh, being Irish. I'm used to calling it Stevens Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the direct your direct show it's either second or third in England. Sorry, but but it's it's, it's surprisingly high given a, given a, a Seb said there. Yes, every time you looked at the table. They were always tenth or ninth or whatever, and 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 also just because just because the way the season went, anytime I was at Arsenal, it was in, in big games, and they actually I always found that they performed really well in a lot of big games, and it's been one of the, maybe kind of pointing to the inconsistency of Arteta. But since Christmas at least, and as he made the change where he brought the young players in, uh, they have been more consistent. That's been overlooked. So I think there is at least potential, but there is equally capacity for disaster. I mean. W- w- while people talk quite highly about how Arteta coaches, and you know it's it's too it's, it's too far, far too simplistic to be talking about you know just you know Pep's assistants and all the rest of it. He is a good coach in his own right. One of the things I've heard from people that work on the training room with him is that his his coaching can actually be a little bit too clean, and like someone describes him, he's basically like it's almost like Sabutio, where he, so it doesn't quite. It doesn't sufficiently translate into mash environments, and and also that he's quite an assured character, self assured character. I said it, or as someone put it, uh, he thinks he knows everything, and he was like that as a player. But I'm, I'm relatively up on them. I think I've got maybe more confidence in the season than most. Do. We'll see what happens in terms of as you asked the the, uh, the clubs that came up. I think Norwich will go straight back down. I mean, there there is some promise. That they could do a Burnley, say where a Burnley from twenty fourteen fifteen, where they they had one season in the Premier League, got the experience, got the money, went down, and then came back a much stronger outfit. 
And I, I mean, that, that was pretty much a championship squad and they came back up again. So similar in profiles in Irish, but you do think they're going to be a little bit too light, maybe. Watford, just because, again, the great experience of Premier League, I think they, they could potentially consolidate themselves. And I would love Brentford to do well. I, I, and I, I think with modern football the way it is, it's hard not to uh, be positively disposed to a team that has an idea, that wants to do something, that you know has a clear identity. That's something that Brentford has. But and I think that will amplify any team and make them more than some of their parts. But the parts, while their recruitment has generally been exceptional because of the way they're run it's still quite a leap to go to the Premier League and you would wonder whether there'd be maybe just that bit lacking in quality. Conversely, Seb, what about any sort of so-called established clubs who are sleepwalking into, into real trouble? I'll throw three at you. Southampton, an absolutely pivotal season for uh, Hassan Huttle, I would suggest. Newcastle, the usual cocktail of apathy anger Ashley. and deep frustration All right, and then. Ashley <laughs> and Palace can they regenerate on the hoof with such an untried manager in Patrick Vieira I'll go in reverse order Mike uh, I like Palace I think Palace will be absolutely fine I'm really really looking forward to watching them Michael Lisa is a, a, a good player but they've also done other good business Joachim Anderson is uh, is it's been a while since they signed a centre-half in their early 20s and they've got some really nice sort of developing players around him. Tariq Mitchell's a very, very good player. Easy, as we saw last season, is extremely talented. They've still got Zaha there. Like, it's it's a, it's a growing group. The one I worry about is Southampton because the players they've lost, they've lost Festergaard, they've lost Ings. Going back 12 months, they've lost Oiberg. I don't see, like in the past when Southampton have had talent drains, they've done a pretty good job, or you know, originally they did a good job during the Coman seasons of replacing it and finding players who come in and do enough to just about keep the uh, trajectory pointing up. But this season, I, I, I can't really find any cause for great optimism. Also lost Ryan Bertrand. I know he became a little bit more peripheral towards the end of his time there, but still a very important player. The quality is not there, Mike. To be honest, Armstrong is not going to score the goals that Ings did. I think that I don't think Vestergaard is the very, very best defender. But anytime you take a big piece like that, who's a significant component of your set piece defending, that's trouble. That would worry me. Also, for a team that weren't defensively that good in the first place, it's a concern. And I've got problems with Burnley. I feel like Burnley might be one of those situations where the flux, which is happening away from the football team, so obviously the ALK capital takeover happened last season. Mike Garlic has departed the club worries me because Burnley's Premier League identity has been built on stability. I know these ructions have been going on for a little bit of time, but when you when you require harmony, when you're not spending money because their recruitment has been almost non-existent this summer, haven't really done anything at all, you need to be playing your football in a really positive atmosphere. And I don't know, I'm not saying it's going to be negative, but I just... It's uncertain in a way that it hasn't been before. I'd like, actually, I'd like to disagree with Miguel on Norwich. I think Norwich will do really well. I, I Not really well, I, but I, I think they'll be very competitive. They've made some great signings. I, Miller Rishika, everyone kind of knows about and is positive about. I think Josh Sargent, the USA international, he's kind of, um, doesn't look like a footballer. It looks a, a little bit sort of like Napoleon Dynamite. 
and he's scrappy and a little bit. He's not that refined as a player, but he's very effective. And they signed a guy from Nice called Pierre-Louis Melou. Sorry if I butchered the accent, but he is, he's a very good bit of business. I, I, I hadn't noticed they'd actually signed him until a couple of days ago. And I saw his name for us about sort of seven million pounds and I, I couldn't believe it. So I, I think their recruitment has been pretty good. And you add Billy Gilmore into that, obviously. And uh, there's a Greek player that I've never heard of, but a lot of people are really, really positive about. I've never seen him play, but everyone tells me he's very, very good. So I feel like Norwich have, their failing last time was to be a little bit passive in the market when they came up. This time, I feel as if they have actually added some quality, even if they've lost Bendir. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing them. I think they might still get relegated, but I don't think it'll be quite like last time. Good. Well, I suppose now it has to be Tim Helmet time. Chaps, can you give me your top six in order, please? And your three relegated teams. Migs, do you want to start? Top six, I will go for Chelsea, Manchester City, Liverpool, Manchester United, Leicester, and Arsenal. Can I let Seb do his top six and then come back to me for my relegation? <laughs> Go on, Seb. All right, all right. My top, Take it away, my, my top six comes with an asterisk on the basis that uh, we're assuming that Chelsea is signing Lukaku and Jules Conde. So I'm going to go Chelsea, Man City, Man United, Leicester, Liverpool, Spurs, just because. I don't know. Like I wanted to feel something good. Uh, <laughs> Mikel, tell me he's getting relegated. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I've, been, I've, I've had to do this prediction for the independent, and I haven't been able to decide all week. Crystal Palace, Brentford, probably, and Norwich. Okay, I've got Southampton, Brentford, Burnley to go down. I mean, I, I woke up really early this morning, and before I had my coffee, I actually had an Everton in that list because I was just a bit all over the place. But I, I do generally think Everton might be a little bit of a disaster this season but not that much of a disaster, a kind of 12th place, maybe. Okay, well, this is the bit to bookmark, everyone. Chelsea are my champions. Uh, The rest of the top six in order. City, Liverpool, United, Leicester and Villa. I was sorely tempted to tip Newcastle and Palace to go down, but my bottom three consists of Brentford, Southampton and Watford. It only remains for me to thank Seb and Miguel for putting their reputations on the line and to thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Enjoy the season. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.